So I, I originally gave a, gave a title having to do with um, plasticity at electrical synapses. And my original idea was to talk about both, both short-term plasticity and also longer-term changes that occur in electrical synapses. But I decided that since uh, Klaus was involved in most of the, um, at least the biochemical studies of the uh, rapid changes, um, you've probably all heard that story. So I figured I'd concentrate on this, which is actually something, something new that I've never, never presented in a seminar before. And this deals with um, work that we've been doing looking at, um, at the trigeminal ganglion in mice and looking at a pain model um, um, that replicates some features of um, chronic orofacial pain. So this work was actually begun in um, visits that, um, that Menachem Hanani, pictured on the left, um, has been visiting um, our lab in New York for the last several summers. And it's also included uh, Sylvia Swatakani, who's been in the group for a long time. Some of you may know her. Rodolfo Iglesias, um, who's done the electrophysiology, mostly with me. And Julie, Maria, and Regina, who've been doing the uh, behavioral studies that I'll talk about. In addition, uh, Eliana was, just, was involved in the characterization of the panexin that comes at the end of the talk. I have a long history, actually, of being interested in cutaneous receptors. And Klaus, I decided to put this one in sort of for you, because I've heard that you've gone back to your roots now, looking at ceramide. Um, and this is my, my PhD thesis dealt with cutaneous receptors, actually, looking at temperature receptors. And I've always wanted to get back into um, a project that involved looking at cutaneous receptors and the early stages in processing. Um, actually, I put this in this uh, figure, this um, illustration to sort of to encourage graduate students to cite old literature. We uh, use this in one of our review papers. And I guess there, there are several reasons to study chronic pain. Um, the first is a severe, it's a severe problem for which mechanisms are very poorly understood and for which there really is no good therapy, um, uh, in part because the, the mechanisms are unknown. But also, from my standpoint, it's very interesting that there have been a number of reports indicating that gap junctions may be involved in various pain models. And this is a list of, gap junction, of, of papers that have linked changes in gap junctions or or gap junction-mediated communication, um, generally between astrocytes or between um, uh, microglia with uh, chronic or acute pain states in either dorsal root or um, trigeminal ganglion. A lot of these, uh, a number of these have involved uh, Menachem Hanani, who's visited our lab. In addition, we have an old history of looking at the effects of anesthetics on gap junction channels. And we're actually the first to show um, blockade of gap junctions by, by various anesthetics, including something I want to emphasize now, uh, volatile anesthetics. Both halothane and isoflurane um, block very effectively gap junctions between cells, and especially those between neurons and glia. And this is important nowadays because of the use of two-photon techniques to look at living brain, often in anesthetized animals. Understand that under those conditions, the glia are no longer coupled to each other. Okay, so now we get onto the model. This is what we've used to, to uh, try to replicate um, uh, a chin uh, chronic pain model in a mouse. We inject Freud's adjuvant in a very small volume 
in the mouse's uh, sort of sub-chin area. You can imagine a mouse with a chin. Um, and this causes a, uh, an acute inflammation in that area, as indicated here. But you see that it, it resolves perhaps a little more quickly in the Balb C mice than the C57s. But over a period of a few weeks, the uh, inflammation disappears. However, despite this disappearance of the local inflammation in the chin, there is a prolonged hypersensitivity, as indicated by sensitivity to von Frey hairs. Because of the position of this uh, lesion, it's very easy for us to stimulate with von Frey hairs and determine um, pain thresholds, hypersensitivity thresholds. So uh, ordinarily, there is a uh, reasonably high threshold for uh, stimulation. But in this model, extending out to seven weeks, at least four weeks beyond where local inflammation has returned to, to normal, there is a persistent pain state. Okay, so up to now, what have I said? We have a, we have a, uh, a model of uh, uh, chronic inflammation that involves um, a transient inflammation that um, is long outlasted by a hypersensitivity as indicated by the, by the von Frey filament test. This hypersensitivity is largely prevented or largely re um, um, restored to normal sensitivity in the presence of carbonoxalone, a single injection giving one hour before treatment, before uh, testing. Um, now, in the old days, one would interpret this as a gap junction channel blockade. So we were intrigued by this and decided to study it in more detail using a couple of different methods. So the first, um, oh, and because, because Menachem is very excited by satellite glial cells, We've emphasized uh, changes that occur between the satellite glial cell and the neuron, largely under um, conditions of dissociated cell culture from the trigeminal ganglion, but focusing on the area that is innervated by this, the, uh, that corresponds to the um, area of innervation of the injury. The satellite glial cells, the, the arrangement of neurons and glia in the ganglia is really a very intimate one, with each, satellite, with each neuron being ensheathed by a number of these satellite glial cells on the order of about eight that are coupled to one another and completely isolate one neuron from its neighbors. So the first thing that we did was to look at the um, calcium waves elicited by either electrical or mechanical stimulation of either the neuron or the glial cell. And this just shows an example where we electrically stimulate a neuron and look at the calcium elevations in the neuron and in the satellite glial cells surrounding it, in this case, in a two-day culture. Here are examples where we've given um, either a neuron or a glial cell a light tap and also elicited uh, calcium waves that travel from um, from the neuron to the glial cells or from the glial cell back to the neuron. So there is bidirectional signaling from the neuron to the glial cell um, of calcium waves. One of our interesting findings was that if we take the, glial, the cultures from the uh, models that have the hypersensitivity, there is a, a strong alteration in the um, 
uh, amplitude of the calcium waves um, elicited um, spread from one cell to another. So in the, in the model of hypersensitivity, there is a, a modification in the signaling among the cells, um, actually a large increase in at least one parameter of the signaling. What does this signaling do to? And this just shows that, um, that we can largely block uh, the signaling with either a broad spectrum P2 receptor antagonist or carbonoxalone. Again, a gap junction channel blocker that also blocks other things, which I'll come back to again a little later. So in order to explore this issue in more detail, um, the mechanism for these changes, we've um, um, conducted electrophysiological experiments on um, neurons and glial cells and, um, and pairs of them. The neurons and glia are easy to tell apart electrophysiologically, of course, the neurons being quite excitable. And we've also done dye injections, um, both in cultures and also in the ganglion, intact ganglion. And here you see that Lucifer yellow injected into a satellite glial cell spreads around to other satellite glial cells. Um, when it's injected into a neuron um, from one of the, the um, disease models, um, it spreads to other neurons as well as some other cells. Notice this little cell here. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. This coupling um, uh, in culture disappears rather rapidly um, over a period of a couple of days um, as the cells kind of drift apart, um, both between glia and neurons. Just in case the issue of um, does the culture model replicate the in vivo situation, um, which is sure to, sure to raise its head here. Um, the coupling is certainly not an artifact of cell culture in the sense that it is not increased with time and culture, but rather disappears in culture with time. Anyway, so then we've recorded between, from pairs of um, the satellite glial cells and also pairs, heterologous pairs of a neuron and a satellite glial cell. And to our great surprise, we found, well, we found, as expected, coupling between the satellite glial cells directly. But to our great surprise, either using um, current clamp conditions or under voltage clamp, shown here, we see transmission of currents between, directly between the satellite glial cell and the neuron, or between the neuron and the satellite glial cell. Of course, things are reversible. Um, this is amazing. This really, I waited 25 years for this kind of a result. And we've, we've actually published a number of cases in which we can artificially induce coupling between neurons and glial cells. But I have never seen it before in an in vivo, well, in vivo, in vitro situation. We see it in vivo as well with the dye injection experiments. But anyway, this is amazing. This astrocyte-like cell is directly coupled to its neuro, neuron neighbor. Um, it's electrical coupling because you can block it with a gap junction channel blocker reversibly. And we can look at the single channel properties. So there are, there are um, I've spent a lot of my, my uh, scientific life looking at the biophysical properties of different gap junction proteins. And this shows the, pro the uh, um, electrophysiology of a, uh, a ramp applied to one of a pair of satellite glial cells it has a characteristic voltage dependence um, shown here in sort of steady state. 
which is really characteristic of connexin 43. This is a connexin 43 gap junction channel, and the unitary conductance is right too. Between a satellite glial cell and a neuron, though, the, prof the, electrophys the uh, um, voltage dependence is very different. It's much steeper in one polarity, and the unitary conductance of the channel is much smaller. I don't know for sure what this is, but it's consistent with connexin 45 on one side, maybe on the neuron side, Klaus, and connexin 43 on the other. If you have other ideas, it would be fun to talk about. But what's really cool about this is that if we perform current clamp experiments, even in cells, where, even in pairs, in, and this is a case where I've chosen a pair in which the junctional conductance is very, very low, we can give a, um, a uh, we can hyperpolarize the glial cell and give a, potential, a uh, depolarization to the neuron that is subthreshold. But we can bring this to threshold and even accelerate the firing by depolarizing the glial cell. This is a direct effect of the, neuron, of the gap junction between the glial cell and the neuron on the neuronal excitability. I know of no other example of this, and it's really cool. So, but then we went on to study, uh, well, when we were doing these experiments, we also found that if we, if we did multiple stimulations of either the glial cell or the neuron, we found a long latency response in the other cell. This is not due to a gap junction, obviously, because it doesn't occur at the same time as the electrical stimulation, and it must be due to something else. Um, this is blocked by this, our friend carbonoxalone, which we used to think of as an exclusive gap junction channel blocker. And now I need to sort of step aside and talk about other experiments we've done in a more sim simplified system. <clears throat> and I need to talk a little bit about, just mention, um, two um, candidate hemichannel molecules, since this has already been brought up. One is connexin 43, this gap junction protein that forms the channels between the satellite glial cells and other glial cells, and panexin 1, which has no sequence homology with connexin 43, has domain homologies, however, um, and is now known to probably never form gap junction channels, which we can talk about later. But it does form non-junctional channels in the membrane. And here we've um, transfected neuro-2A cells with panexin-1 um, as sort of has homologous experiments to ones we've done transfecting N2A cells with gap junction proteins in order to characterize their properties. Neuro-2A cells are essentially totally deficient in gap junction protein expression, but they have a very low level of endogenous panexin-1 expression. So if we compare that low-level panexin expression with expression of the exogenous um, panexin-1, we can ask whether or not they're similar, and also, and they are. They're activated by voltages around zero millivolts. Um, they reverse at around zero millivolts. Um, and the unitary conductance of the channels that they form seem to be very similar on the order of 400 or, or even more picosiemens. This is a big channel. Um, several other characteristics that we worked out in N2A cells are that we can evoke giving a ramp to one cell 
we can evoke um, a long latency response in a second cell that looks sort of like what I showed you before in the um, S um, um, satellite glial cell neurons. If we use a triple stimuli, uh, stimuli um, paradigm, we also evoke a response somewhat more frequently. So being lazy, we tend to do the triple stimulation more often than the single. The response drops off um, as a function of distance separate, separating the two cells, indicating that it, again, is due to the release of something that is received by the second cell. It's not blocked by either tetanus toxin or extracellular calcium decrease, indicating that it's unlikely to be vesicular. Um, it's blocked by carbonoxalone, which is important to show. It also is blocked by mefloquin. And let me just say, since that came up earlier today, the, uh, the mefloquin sensitivity um, appears to be a characteristic of panexin-1 that is not shared at the same concentration by um, connexins. Um, as an aside to an aside, the story there was that um, um, Srini, a postdoc in my lab a number of years ago, showed that um, mefloquin blocks connexin-36 gap junction channels at a concentration below about micromolar. And, and Srini was really excited about this and decided that here we had a beautiful anti-epileptic compound that blocked nothing else at that concentration. So then Eliana did a study in which she was looking at, pan at P2X7 receptor-induced currents and found the concentrations at 10 nanomolar and less totally blocked. So Srini didn't talk to her for two months afterwards because he'd lost his magic compound. But anyway, um, that's just an aside. In, again, in N2A cells, we can, we can block this late release with carbonoxalone. You can see that it also blocks the activation, the normal activation of the panexin channels. Covers on washout, of course. We can um, intensify the response with an inhibitor of um, uh, ATPase um, activity, and we can um, decrease the activity in the presence of uh, exogenous um, ATPase. Again, indicating that whatever the compound is that's released to act on the second cell, it is likely to be ATP and not a degradation product, not ADP or adenosine. Uh, this just shows that um, we can block, in, H in N2A cells, we can largely block this response with a rather specific inhibitor of P2X7 receptors, or um, again, a nonspecific P2 receptor antagonist. Um, and this just uh, illustrates again that a P2X7 receptor is, is likely uh, largely responsible for this um, activity because we can elicit activity that's very similar with the BZATP, a P2X7 receptor agonist. Um, okay, now let's go back to the neuron SG, SGC coupling and um, use what we learned from the N2A studies um, to analyze this a little more in a little more detail. So first of all, we see in the glial cell an activation of the panexin current um, by voltage. We see the same thing in the neuron after we get those nasty inward currents out of the way. We see a late response both in neuron uh, in response to the glial cell 
and in glial cell in response to the neuron, and we can largely block this with a broad-spectrum P2 receptor antagonist. In the presence of apyrase, we can also largely block this response, either from neuron to glia, illustrated here, or from glia to neuron. Uh, again, indicating that it is likely due, at least largely, to release of ATP. This just quantifies it. Okay, so. Okay, to summarize what I've talked about today, um, um, there is bidirectional communication between the satellite glial cell and the neuron. The, um, the communication, um, as evaluated by calcium waves, um, is enhanced um, following this um, hypersensitivity model in which excitability is increased, which I didn't demonstrate. Um, there is, an, there is um, a direct um, communication not only between the satellite glial cells, but also between the glial cells and neurons, which can affect neuronal excitability. And there is bidirectional signaling through the release of ATP, likely involving PANX and one channels. So that, in summary, there is both bidirectional connexin and PANX-mediated intracellular communication in the system. And our model of what's going on is that um, following this, um, in, in this chronic orofacial pain model, in the neurons that um, innervate the area, there is um, both uh, increased communication with the satellite glial cells, um, an alteration in P2 receptors to a more sensitive subtype, but also to increased expression of P2X7. Um, um, and there also is increased coupling between satellite glial cells innervating separate neurons so that a larger number of cells is recruited into the response. And again, coming back to the people with whom I did this work, Menachem was really responsible for sucking me into this field. Um, Sylvia was involved in the calcium waves. Rodolfo with me did the uh, electrophysiology. And Julie, Maria, and Regina did the uh, behavioral studies on these mice. <laughs>